0: Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27, I'm just going to read all of it, and then we'll dive into it. It says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful, lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, then tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that if you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Nothing controversial there at all this morning (laughs) for us to start with, huh? Uh, This is a tough conversation, Uh, and I've really been praying uh, about this message all week. And one of the things that we do here at Grace is is we preach the whole word. So we walk through the whole text. We teach verse by verse. And, And so there's certain passages that are a lot harder than others. And there's certain weeks where I'm really excited to get here, and I'm really fired up because I get to bring you something amazing. And there's certain days where I'm like, Jesus, do I have to do this? this week he said yes. Uh, so I've gotten some help uh, this week from, from, from sources. Uh, one of the things that I love to do is I love, <laughs> this, is, this is a ridiculous uh, preacher thing, but I love when I'm studying a text, I love to learn somebody who is alive now that I respect, and somebody who died a long time ago that I respect. And kind of read those kind of passages side by side. So I, I went to Spurgeon this week. I read about five sermons that Spurgeon preached on this. So if I start using Old English, it's because I've been paying attention to Spurgeon a lot this week. Uh, I also read a lot from John Mark Comer and listened to a few sermons that he has. He's a great pastor out on the West Coast who's doing some really great things. And, and so as, as I looked at this passage, I started to realize what the discussion here is for us in our moment is there's a discussion of like an either or. A lot of times in scripture we kind of hold up these kind of either ors. And so uh, there's this idea of purity culture, which I don't know how many of you grew up in like youth ministry in the 1980s and 1990s in the church. I'm raise your hand if that's you. So nothing I will say that's super weird about purity culture will surprise you in any way because you all have experienced that. For those of you who didn't experience it, it was super weird. And so we're gonna talk about some of that stuff. Uh, because what purity culture teaches us is that we flee from our desires. Uh, but then we also have secular culture. We have kind of the world around us and what that teaches And any of you who consume any bit of media on a consistent basis, if you're on social media, if you watch television or movies or the news or, or look at billboards, you will recognize that secular culture doesn't say that we flee from our desires. It says that we follow our desires. We pursue them. Whatever feels good, we do it. Whatever we like, we go chase after it. And, and so what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of creating an ethic around purity. And he's talking about this is the way we're going to live this out. And so when he says these statements like you've heard it said, what he's not doing is critiquing his word He's not critiquing the word, he's, in, he's critiquing the interpretation of the word. Right? So when he says, you've heard it said this, but I say this, he's not going back to the 10 Commandments because last week, Douglas preached about the sixth commandment, right, do not murder. And, and Jesus said, no, no, and it's not just about murder, it's about anger. It's about living in this hatred for your brother. And this week, we're talking about the seventh commandment, which is do not commit adultery, and Jesus is saying, listen, this is not just about sex. This is not just about adultery. It's about something much bigger. So I grew up in the 1980s, 1990s in uh, a youth group in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and, and I went to this ultra, ultra conservative Christian school. So very, very conservative, very weird. So just think about all the weird cliches that you have in uh, about uh the church, and about God, and about sex, and about all of those things, and they all existed in my high school. I promise you, I have I, I experienced some of the weird, I, this isn't in my notes, maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but it's just super weird. I, I went, I showed up one day to my history class, and my teacher had been gone because his wife just had a baby, and he said, I've brought the video of my wife giving birth for you to watch, who wants to watch it? I was the only kid in the class that was like, heck no, I'm not watching that. I went out in the hall and stood by myself while all the other weird kids in my school watched this woman give birth. Like, It was just super weird, right? The church can be super weird, and there's lots of weird things. And, and, and I can understand where this kind of movement of purity culture came from. Uh, it's actually good-hearted, and I'm guessing the people that developed a lot of these things had good intentions in mind, in the same way that the Pharisees, when they were interpreting the law, in many ways had really good intentions. They wanted to value the word of God. They wanted obedience to be important. They wanted holiness to matter. And so they interpreted the law in a certain way that valued those things and lifted those things up. And so I can understand where some of these things came from. But the problem was it caused so much damage to young people and actually taught us a terrible theology. So my sister, we went to this ultra-conservative Christian school. My sister went to prom. And at prom... Uh, she showed up at her prom, and, and it was her senior year of prom. I had already graduated at this time. She showed up to her senior year of prom. There was a woman at the door. Um, I, I don't know who this woman was, but she was measuring skirts. Very biblical thing, holy, <laughs> holy thing. She had a ruler, and if your skirt was a certain amount of inches not connected to your knee then you were not supposed to be there. And apparently prom was the time where the short skirts came out the most, so the short skirt monitors came out the most at that time. So this is what they did, it's a burlap sack. They wrapped it around my sister like this on the night of her senior prom that was supposed to be one of the best nights of her life because her skirt was a half inch, half inch shorter than the regulations. This is what pharisees do, guys. They measure skirts with rulers. They shame children. This is the inter- he he was pretty angry about it. Um we used to have the, like a once a year kind of like a true love waits kind of thing. And we would all gather together and they everybody a lot of bunch of people brought purity rings, which was like a wedding ring before you get married, that it's like a not have sex ring was kind of what it was. And, and so you, we, we would do the ring kind of thing. And we'd do this every year. And we'd gather together in our youth group. And I just remember thinking as a kid, like, and I wasn't, I, I was all, I was like, okay, if this is what I'm supposed to do, like, oh, that's fine. I'll do this. just what Jesus tells me to do. But I just thought it was weird that there were a bunch of kids, like, putting their arms around each other, singing songs about not having sex and stuff like that. <laughs> like, it was just weird. It, there was just weird things about it. And, and uh, my youth pastor, God bless him. He would stand up in front of the, the, the youth group every year. He did the same illustration every year. And I can remember my freshman year feeling like, this is super weird. Like, I don't know what I don't like about this illustration, but I don't like it. And by the time I was a senior, I figured it out. So what he would do is he would hold up a rose, and he would bring some scissors out, and he would talk about, he would tell the story of a girl. It was always about a girl for some reason. And in the story, he would talk about like the girl was giving herself away to different people and he would tear off petals of the rose. And so he would talk about she had sex here and then she had sex here and every time she had sex, apparently a petal fell off. And at the end of it, I just, here, let me just, there, at the end of it, <laughs> there was nothing left and, and, and he would hold up the, the stem and he would say, who would want this? And I remember as a freshman, like, well, I don't know that that's Jesus. I don't know know that I understand. And when I was a senior in high school, but I had, like, my junior year, I argued with him about it. I remember. I was like, hey, I don't, that's not, that's not biblical. Like, that's not, I'm starting to understand the Bible, and I'm not sure that that's the way it works. And my senior year, when he said, who would want the rose? I said, Jesus would from the back. (laughs) I said, Jesus wants the rose. <laughs> He's the one that wants the rose. And so what we do, and this is, this, is the, this is what makes these conversations hard, because what we do oftentimes is in the church, and, it, and I believe it comes from a good place, right? I, I trust good intentions that church people are trying their hardest when the seasons that they're in, but we become Pharisees, and what we do is we heap shame on an already shameful thing. And that's not Jesus, and that's not grace. That's not the story we just heard of the woman at his feet. That's not how Jesus responded to her. That's not how Jesus responds to us. That's not how Jesus responds to a bunch of teenagers who are trying to figure this things out. So what we did was we we were taught that any desire is bad. We were taught that sex was bad. Uh, Which actually, honestly, that had consequences for me when I first got married. Because I had been taught this theology of desire and sex was like this thing that you run from, that you hide from, that you flee from, that you get away from. And I had to reorient my whole thing. And, and, and here's the thing that you never, this is what you never hear, you ne- I've never heard of a youth group teaching Song of Solomon. Have you ever heard that lesson? We don't do it, that's in the Bible. Right? There's a whole book of the Bible that is about sex and desire. We don't teach that to 12 year olds. Right? We don't go into that. The problem with that is, is, is the Bible graphically talks about sex in a good context. It's good, it's wonderful, it's pleasing. We should have desires, but there's guardrails for it. And we've gotta pay attention to the guardrails. So the, the opposite of purity culture is secular culture. And so the church oftentimes says we've gotta flee, while, while secular culture says, this is, no, 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 this is what we do, we just follow. We just follow our desires. We live in a post-truth culture, guys. We live in a post-truth culture and the church has been fighting that for the last 20 years, but the reality is it's where we are as a culture right now. And, and just as there are natural laws in the world, like science that is real, there is also moral laws in the, in the, in the world that are real and true and good, but our culture rejects those. And, and, and as a culture, we've stopped believing that this is true. So morality has moved from the realm of law to the realm of opinion. Morality has moved from a, to a feeling or a bias or an upbringing so we can write it off and we can follow whatever it is that we want to achieve. And so we're left with a culture that doesn't believe in any objective standard of good and evil. And it's troubling and it's hard because Jesus says there are natural laws. There are laws about morality. There are ways that are better than other ways. And also if you tease this out, it just all falls apart. Because there's certain things, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, we know are wrong, right? There's, I mean, I could make a list right now and there's not a single person in this room that's gonna say, you know what, I think child abuse is probably a good thing. We just can't tease it out. Like if all falls apart at some point when we chase this stuff down. So I had a tennis coach as as a college student. Um, he was the former football coach who apparently wasn't very good as a football coach, and they wanted to have a place for him because he's a really sweet man. Uh, and so he coached tennis. He knew nothing about tennis. Uh, which is not good when you're in college and you're an easier your coach. But he was a nice guy and we all liked him. And he took he would take me to Dairy Queen once a month and talk to me about my grades and buy me a blizzard. And he was just a nice guy. He was kind of a father figure to all of us. And and I remember at the very beginning of the season, he would gather us together. He did it every year that I played tennis. And I was a Christian college, right? Uh, Christian college. Uh, but he would gather us all together and, and this is what he would say: Boys. I don't care how much porn you look at, but do not get a girl pregnant. (laughs) That's what he would say. He would say, I will give you money to get the magazines yourself. Just have enough energy to play tennis and just make sure that you're not getting anybody pregnant. This was his moral philosophy of desire, right? This is the kind of thing that we run into over and over again, there's no objective. Just trust your feelings, just follow your heart, just do what's right. But the reality for us as Christians is we are a mix of good desires and bad desires. Inside my life on any given day, I have desires that are true and good and holy and come from the Father and I need to learn to follow those desires. I also have desires that are evil and wrong and terrible. Like, can you imagine if somebody was in your head all day and they heard the things that you thought about them? They heard the things that you wanted to say but didn't say? They heard all of those things? That would not be pleasant for anybody. But secular culture says, follow your desires. So here's what we have. We have this belief that purity culture says, flee. We have this belief that secular culture says, follow. Follow but I believe that Jesus is inviting us to something different here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is inviting us to surrender our desires. He's inviting us to take our desires, whether this is about sex or anything else, take our desires and say, I surrender them to you, and I ask you to guide me and direct me to what is true, good, right, and holy in your sight. Because we don't wanna flee from something that God has said is good, And we don't want to follow something that God has said is bad. And so we've got to build our lives around this. But I understand this. I understand that grace has to be a huge part of this conversation. So this week, as I've been preparing for this, I've been praying over and over and over again that the Lord would just cover this room with his grace, that he would cover my words with his grace, because I recognize that this is real for many of you in the room. That this is hard stuff for many people in the room. And I recognize that, that there are people in this room who are failing and falling in these areas and they need encouragement, not shame today. I recognize that there are people who are fighting the good fight today and you're further along today than you were yesterday and you're battling against your lust and your desires in the right way and in a holy way. I recognize that there are marriages that are on the fringe of falling apart at any moment in this room. I recognize that there's a lot of pain in this room around these things and the last thing I wanna do is be a Pharisee that shows, throws more shame on top of shame. And so I'm asking for your grace I haven't made anybody mad for a while, so maybe today's the day. But I'm asking for your grace today as I try and interpret this. And I want you to know that if there's anything that comes out of my mouth that's not full of grace, I've been praying that the Lord would give me grace today. And if there's anything that comes out of my mouth that's not full of truth, even if it's a hard truth, I've been praying that the Lord would guide me and direct me today in those things, so I, 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 I wanna be there. Let's, let's start breaking this down. Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. Um, remember, Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees interpretation of the law not in in, in, not the actual law because what's happening here whenever we're given a law you can go back to your childhood right You, you can go back to when you were six years old and you were given a law or a rule the moment you hear the law or the rule you start trying to figure out a way around it right kids do this it's just natural for us we start to find the loophole What's the loophole in this? How do I get around this? How do I figure this out? And so everybody is interpreting the Old Testament law. Everybody's interpreting the Ten Commandments, but everybody's trying to find some sort of loophole around this. So in Jesus's age, you have to think about this. Think about purity culture in Jesus's age. Ooh, boy. Everybody's wearing head coverings, right? Women are not permitted to do much of anything, right? This is an oppressive society and culture towards women, And when the topic of adultery comes up, it gets even worse. Uh, So think about purity culture, but multiply it by a 1,000. This is what Jesus is standing in. Because adultery is technically any sexual immorality that violates the marriage covenant. Whether the wife commits adultery against her husband or the husband commits adultery against the wife. But the common teaching in that day was adultery could only be committed by a woman. And if a man committed adultery, so if a man slept with another man's wife, his adultery was not against the woman, it was against the other man. If a man slept with a woman who wasn't married, eh, no harm, no foul. This was the beliefs. I, I, I read first century divorce laws this week until my eyes were bleeding, right? It is terribly boring. Uh, Babylonian culture is absolutely ridiculous with all this. So if a woman cheated on her husband, she was committing adultery against him. But if a man cheated on his wife with another man's wife, he was not committing adultery against his wife, but against a woman's husband. This is a horrible double standard, right? It also twists the original meaning of the command to give the husband a loophole. So Jesus, here's what Jesus is doing. And this is what the Bible does. I, 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 the Bible gets a bad rap with women. And some of it justifiably, because the Bible is behind where our culture is in the way that we treat women right now, in a bad way. But here's where where it aligns. This is where it's good. The Bible always elevates women to a place that their culture did not at that time. So Jesus is always fighting for women and moving them to a place that their culture was not putting them, which means we should be doing the same. That's the principle that we need to take with us. And so Jesus is always elevating, protecting, fighting for women in a culture that not only objectified them, which we're gonna talk about in a minute, but oppressed them. This, these are oppressive laws against women. Divorce laws and laws about lust and adultery are oppressive to women. Women were viewed as property that could be passed around from person to person. Right? Remember, there's so many laws that are starting to come out. This is the first time people are hearing you should just have one wife. They're like, oh, wait a minute, that's new. All right, this is, this is a, you gotta put yourself in the place of culture. But Jesus, in the midst of all of this, is not, is not just saying don't commit adultery, he's teaching us what to do with our desires. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick, so who can understand it? Which means our desires are difficult. It's hard for us to understand our desires. And our desires can be deceitful. They can lead us to places where we follow something in the wrong way, where we, we, we go in the wrong way, so we learn to control our desires and we don't give away our, ourselves to our flesh. The Bible, over and over again, talks about the desires of the flesh, this phrase, the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5 says this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is really important, right? Right? The way the flesh works is opposed to the way the spirit works. And so in you, there is a desire to do something that you're not supposed to do. This relates to sex. This relates to money. This relates to our language. This relates to anger, like we talked about this last week. Any area of our life, there is a desire to do things that we should not do. So what do we do with that? So it says, if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the work of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I like it that he throws the things like this so they can, and then there's a lot more that we could put here, right? Things like this, like drunkenness and orgies. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, here's the temptation when we're reading this, and I I just want to lay it before us. The temptation is to say that Jesus is old and out of touch, that Jesus doesn't understand culture now, that Jesus lived in a completely different world than we live in. Imagine if Jesus was in Atlanta in the summer. He's going to have a hard time, right? Well, like, imagine what's going on there, and if we dig down and discern, we've got to choose, follow, or flee, and I want to suggest that there's a better way than that, I think if we dig down and discern, we recognize that we can trust Jesus with our desires. And that's really good news. That I can trust Jesus with my desires that I can surrender them to him, I can trust him. And we realize that surrender is hard and difficult, but I can trust him with it. Verse 28 says, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is Jesus flipping the script on everything, right? So Jesus is saying, listen, listen, listen. All of your laws are oppressive. The ways that you've set that up are oppressive. We're gonna get to that at the end. But Jesus also says, listen, we're not gonna oppress women, but we're also not gonna objectify women. And so this isn't just about an act of sex. This is about the heart. This is what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount that we forget when we become Pharisees, right? Because Pharisees are all about the law. They're about the rules. They're about the regulations. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm about the heart, I'm about transforming you from the inside out. I'm about your motives and motivations. I'm about what's going on beneath the surface and not just what's seen in, in front of everybody. I wanna clean, the, the, you wanna clean the outside of the cup but keep the inside dirty. I wanna clean all the cup. I wanna start in the heart because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, evil comes. I wanna transform you so that you actually become like me, not just so that you look like you like me or you look like you're obeying me. I wanna actually teach you and train you to trust me. And so what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is this beautiful, beautiful work of talking about the heart. The law is kept and broken in our heart, guys. It's not in our behaviors and in our actions. It's in our heart. And so he says anyone that even looks at a woman with lust in his heart. Now listen, I I wanna be clear on this. This is not saying don't appreciate beauty. This is not saying you can't, you like you have to walk around with a mask on everywhere you go. It's not saying you can't glance at a woman somewhere and say, oh, that's an attractive woman. Or you can't look at a man and say, that's a good looking guy. Like, that's not what it's suggesting in any way. What it is suggesting is that it's okay to admire beauty, it's okay to look at beauty, it's okay to say that's an attractive person. But Jesus is saying it's not a sin. To be tempted, the question is, what are you gonna do with that temptation? Here's the problem, men in the room, every single one of you. Here's our problem. It's the second look, not the first. Can I get an amen? That's the problem. The problem is the second look. We cannot control our temptation, but we can moderate it. Martin Luther said this about temptation and sin. He said, I can't stop birds from flying over my head. I cannot do that but I can stop them from making a nest in my hair. Fellas, it's the second look, right? This is what Jesus is warning about. He's warning about the second look that leads to lust. To look at women lustfully, according to John Mark Comer, is when we gaze at a woman in order to get sexual gratification from her body. The NIV says when we look with lustful intent. It's when we're looking in order to lust or to fuel sexual desire. Dallas Willard says it's when we use a woman as a visual presence in order to fantasize. So the discipline for us is we do what Paul says we do with our thoughts. We take them captive. We control them. We're disciplined. We recognize and we avoid the second look. Jesus is working against the objectification of women. So listen, don't hear what I'm not saying here. I'm going to say this about three or four times. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to desire. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to appreciate beauty. I'm not saying that sex is bad. What I am saying is looking at a woman with who is not your spouse with lustful intent will lead us to bad places. Song of Solomon is not included in the purity conversation. But Song of Solomon is full of desire, guys. It's full of it. If there's kids in the room, earmuffs. Uh, Here's what it is. It's a poem about extravagant lovemaking. It talks about oral sex, guys, it's in the Bible. It talks about yearning and searching and hiding and finding. Breasts are compared to fawns. A man's penis is compared to sweet fruits. His genitalia is a bag of myrrh, which apparently is a good thing. The women in the, is a garden of pomegranates that should be eaten. Lips and mouth are like honey and milk. What the Bible is saying is sex is great. Beauty is great. Desire is great. All of these things are wonderful. The problem is when we turn it into objectification. This is really, really important, and as we walk through the entire Sermon on the Mount, this relates to almost every one of the passages that we're talking about. The problem is when we turn people into objects to get our desires. That's objectification. Somebody else becomes the way that I fulfill my own desires, and I don't care about what happens to that somebody else. That's the problem. And so we do the same thing with money. We do the same thing in lots of different areas, but what we were taught to do is not to do this. This is that that idea of adultery of the heart. So the Pharisees are so wrapped up in the legalities and the technicalities that they forget the most important part is the heart. Nobody wakes up and has an affair on an accident. It doesn't happen. It starts with a second glance and then a third glance. It starts with a first comment and then a second comment. And then a third comment. It starts with a first text. And then a second text. And then a third text. It starts with a first phone call. And then a second phone call. And then a third phone call. It starts with a meet up. And then a second meet up. And this is how it happens. Nobody has an affair by an accident. We have an affair because we're following our desires to a place that it should not take us to. It starts with a second. Look, there's a progression to all of this. So there's a huge difference between love and Lust. Right? And our culture will tell you that there isn't. Right? Secular culture will tell you there is no difference between love and lust. If you watch any movie, any movie that is about love, it'll be intertwined with lust and you will not be able to differentiate between the two. I don't know of any film or any media that actually portrays this in the right way. So love in 1 Corinthians talks about laying down your life. Right? You lay down your life for the people that you love. It also starts off with this. Love is what? Love is patient. Love is patient. Lust is always in a hurry. Lust is getting what you want. Right? I gotta get what I want right now. Love is selfless. And lust is selfish. Love is an act of the will. I, I, every time I do a wedding, I talk about this. I always say to whoever the young people are, your spouse is not going to look like he or she does today for the rest of their lives. They are not. They are not. This is all gonna fall apart. And so if you're here because of a feeling, if you're here because of a feeling, this feeling is gonna go away. Being married does not feel like your wedding day every day of your life. Can I get an amen from the women in the room? Right? It does not feel like that. It's all romantic and wonderful and amazing and incredible in that moment. Love is love is an act of the will. I choose to love every day. I don't feel to love every day. I choose to love every day. Lust is is is, is just it's just something we fall into. It'll be destroyed by the flesh because it's just this idea of no matter the cost, no matter what happens, I'm going to follow my flesh into whatever I feel. And the problem is if if love is about a feeling, then I'm going to fall out of it and fall into it. Love, Love is a choice. Lust is a feeling. Love seeks to serve while lust seeks to control. And we could go on and on with this, guys, but our culture is working overtime to tell us a lie. It's working overtime to tell us that lust and love are the same thing. And the Bible says, no, they're not. Love is beautiful. Love is good. Love does not oppress. Love does not objectify. Love lays down its life for the people in which it serves. Jesus' solution is not to stop having desires. It's to surrender your desires. It's to place them under the mantle of love and not lust and sort it out. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, this is a fun part, tear it out and let it be thrown away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than cast the whole body and be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away for it is better to lose one of your members and the whole body go to hell. Um, this is exaggerated speech, guys. Are you with me? There was nobody on the side over here sharpening some knives. There was no like, hey, it's the end of the service, sermon on the mount's over, let's line up and get our hands chopped off. Right, And the reality is, if we're gonna chop something off, the thing that we should be talking about is not included in here. Are you with me? Right, it's just not there. This is hyperbole that Jesus is talking about. And here's what he's saying. Radical choices need to be made in order to stay holy. This is what he's saying. Radical choices, this is shock value. And what he's doing a little bit with his shock value is he's playing out the Pharisees' game, right? He's kind of playing their game with him. All right, we want to follow the law completely, then this is what has to happen. Who's ready? And the Pharisees are like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not ready for that. You can beca- you, you cannot become a person who lives this way without it costing you something. That's what Jesus is saying. Holiness will cost you something. Holiness is hard. Holiness is difficult my my son just went off to college and i had to spend a lot of time talking with him and telling him hey i need you to understand that holiness for me meant that i spent a whole lot of fridays by myself because everybody else was going to do stuff that i couldn't go do with them and it was hard and it was difficult and it felt lonely and i felt like all these other people are doing it this is why why can't i but it was the right choice and so let's, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. Like, let's think about media. Let's think about TV shows or movies or those kinds of things. They're, it's available to all of us. All of us can stream all kinds of different things. There's all kinds of things that have come out in the media and, and, and movies and those kinds of things. The, our, our, our purity culture would say, like, we just flee from media, right? You write blogs about how Harry Potter is bad You just run away from media completely, right? That's what you do. You just flee from anything. You don't watch TV. You don't watch movies. You don't read books. You just kind of, you just read your Bible. Uh, Secular culture would say, you just watch whatever. It's really not that big of a deal, right? You can watch whatever you want to watch. What Jesus is saying is that what I want you to do is I want you to surrender your consumption of media with me. I want me to help you discern what you can watch. So, so uh, th- this is, when I say this, I'm not being prescriptive. I'm talking about this is my life. I can watch a violent movie and not get violent. I can't. I don't know if I'm not a violent person, but I've never been watching Taken and decided to get a gun and go chase somebody down, right? That's just never happened to me. I can actually hear some movies that have some language and that language doesn't come out of me. I don't know, maybe that's not true for you. I know people that that's not true for. But for me, I can can hear a little bit of bad words and not immediately start cursing at my children, right? I've never been able to watch a sex scene on television without lusting. I can't do it. I can't do it. You take the top, let's just say, 0.5% of beautiful women in the world and have them take off their clothes And I don't think there's many men in the room that can watch that. And so I have to filter my media through that lens. I will sin if I watch this. And so I've gotta fast forward sometimes. It's awkward. I gotta say I gotta fast forward. Or I have, honestly, this is ridiculous and I don't do this to show, I've closed my eyes at times. And there's times when I make a mistake and I watch something that I shouldn't watch. And I've never felt good about that afterwards right? So when we think about the way we consume media, we've got to think about those things. You can do the same thing with your phone, right? How you manage your phone. You can do the same thing about how you manage your social media intake. I was listening to somebody talk about social media this week, and they were talking about Instagram, and they were like, Instagram's fun. I'm like, looking at my friends, until I hit the search bar, and all kinds of crazy things start popping up. So like, his rule is, I never go that way, right? Is it Right, like I never go to the right side where there's search things. I just don't go that way because there's danger there. I, it's great for me to see what my kids or what my friends ate for dinner and that they had a fun family time and that the Braves won or those kinds of things. But when I go to that search thing, trouble starts happening. So I always stay away from that. Um, you can think about this in terms of alcohol. You can think about this in terms of in, in terms of parties or being out at night. Like like this applies to everything. We we don't have to flee everything. We also don't need to follow everything. We need to surrender it. And we need to say, Jesus, and it may be different for some of us, and that's okay, but we fight for holiness. We're willing to battle for it. Um, here's a hard thing. I, I want to talk to the young women in the room because my daughter turned 11 and decided she doesn't want to wear any clothes. Right? So, so I don't know what happened in her life, but I'm being very serious about this. My daughter turned 11 years old and just suddenly... I think social media, I think this idea of following culture, there's a model of what beauty looks like in our culture, and beauty looks like skin. Uh, and and uh, it's very tricky. So listen, don't hear what I'm not saying here, please. Women in the room, I am not saying it's, the, it's your responsibility to work through the lust of men. That's not your responsibility. That's not what you need to do. But Jesus' culture is not ours. And what I am saying is you don't need to dress in a way that someone would objectify you. You don't need to dress in a way that gets you attention. You don't need to dress in a way that causes your brothers in Christ to sin. I'm telling you, I know in this church, there are really, really good men who are battling with their lust every day and who are winning. They are submitting and surrendering it to Jesus. They are fighting it and they are battling it. And I'm asking you as sisters in Christ to help us I'm asking you to help and and to battle with us because this is the reality of of this. And listen, this has been hard and and, and challenging and difficult. and, And I'm not saying in any way that because you dress a certain way that men are allowed to do something towards you. Or Please don't hear any of that. I'm not jumping to purity culture. But I am saying pay attention to what Jesus wants you to wear. Pay attention to what Jesus is inviting you into. Pay attention to what purity looks like in the way that you dress and in the way that you carry yourself, in the language that you speak, all of those kinds of things. Pay attention to those kinds of things. Let's get to the fun part now. Verse 31, Lord, help us. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except the ground on sexual morality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if lust is dealing with objectification, divorce is dealing with oppression. This is a big deal in Jesus' culture. Uh, And here's what I will say about Jesus' culture and our culture that are similar. Divorce is easy. We've made divorce way easier than it should be. I have lots of friends who've been divorced. I have lots of neighbors and people that I'm connected with. Never has one of them said, it was great. It's really good. It's a good thing. It's terrible. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. It shouldn't be easy, but it is easy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 is talking about this because this language comes up of this certificate, this idea of this divorce certificate. So I started tracking down, like, what does that mean? Where is this? It's, it talks about it seven times in Scripture, this idea of a divorce certificate. And I, I had to do a ton of research to actually figure out what's actually going on here. here here's what Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 says. This is in, in our Bible. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, then he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from the house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God. Lord, your God is giving you an inheritance. That's super fun. So here's what we need to understand about Deuteronomy chapter 4, because when I first read that, I was horrified by it. It is not law. It is case study, right? So there's all of these scenarios that are thrown out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. What if, what if, what if, what if? And it's almost like people are looking for loopholes, and there's people that are trying to, like, nail in the loopholes. This is not how it's going to happen. It seems outdated and it seems crazy, but listen to this. When you read this and you understand what Babylonian divorce laws were, you understand that this is actually protecting women. Because Babylonian divorce law said this, I could divorce a woman at any time for anything, right? Uh, if, if, the, if dinner isn't very good, that never happens at my house. Uh, if your driving is critiqued, that happens every day in my house. Uh, if your spouse doesn't put on makeup for a few days, right? Any reason, this is what Babylonian law says, and there's actually rabbis that taught this. If your wife doesn't please you at any moment, they think of their wife as property in this moment. If your wife at any moment isn't pleasing to you, then you, you just write a certificate. Here you go, here's the certificate, go, you're done. But here's Babylonian law. At any point within five years, you can go back and you can reclaim your wife. So maybe you're like, ah, three years later, I was having a rough season that May, and that dinner wasn't that bad, right? So now, regardless of where she is in life, regardless of whether she's remarried, regardless of what's happened, you can go and you can claim her back. So what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is saying, uh-uh, that's not what's going to happen, and he's changing the standard just a little bit. What Jesus is doing is he's changing the standard even more. This is not about a certificate. This is about our heart. Jesus says no. And here's here's what you've got to understand. No woman had any right in a divorce case. A woman could not divorce a husband in Jesus' time. It couldn't happen. Only a husband could divorce a wife. And so people are always asking Jesus, and people are asking me this question all the time. Pastor, is there any reason why I can get a divorce? And part of my thought is the same as the Pharisees. Like, are you just looking for a loophole here? Or are you genuinely in a place where there is something going on in your marriage that this is serious? And so Jesus gives us one of those reasons today. He specifically says it in the passage. Adultery. If adultery has happened, then you can do it. Um, and I think Jesus' response to adultery and, or, or to divorce would be the same as mine. I hate divorce. I don't want divorce for any of you. I don't want it to happen. But there's three reasons the Bible gives when a divorce is okay. The first is adultery. The second is abandonment. The Bible talks about if you've been abandoned, if your spouse has left you, if your spouse has completely abandoned, moved out of the house, they've abandoned you, they've left you, then you can do it. The third is abuse. If your spouse is abusive to you. uh, That's common sense, um, but also would justify uh, divorce. So this idea of a certificate is huge. And, and here's what we need to understand about the certificate. It, it states that there are reasons for the divorce, it makes financial provisions for the woman, and it grants her freedom to remarry. But here's some things we need to realize. The first is that in a wedding ceremony, the thing that we say is what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. I, When I do wedding counseling with people, when I do marriages, the one thing I remind them over and over and over again is this is a covenant, not a contract. You are making a covenant right now. And the problem with your covenant is that it's not just between the two of you. You've brought a third source into this the day that you brought me in to proclaim these words. And so if you want to be married in a church, and if you want me to be the pastor that does this, I need you to understand this is a covenant and not a contract. Contracts can be voided in any point. Contracts can be disputed and fought. Covenants cannot and so when you are married, God is actually saying I'm joining you together. The second thing is that the certificate is not the most important thing. The heart is. Right? Nobody's like, "Why did you get married? Well, we just needed that certificate. We just needed that little marriage license." Everybody's cuz I'm in love. Cuz this is where my heart is. This is this is the this is the thing. And then the last thing is that divorce is permitted but not commanded after adultery, abuse and abandonment. So in those moments, adultery is permitted, but it's not commanded, which means you have to do what's wise. Now listen, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, women, if your husband is abusing you, go back and don't get a divorce. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, and this may make some people angry in here, there have been times when people have come to me and said, should I get a divorce? And I say, yes, you should get a divorce. Because you are in danger, your children are in danger, and this is not a safe place for you to be. The Bible says that's okay, right? We're having fun now, guys. We're really, really enjoying this. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, all things are lawful, lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You may have permission to divorce, but that may not be the wise thing to do. I think grace exists. I've seen marriages that have been rescued from terrible things. I've seen marriages that have been rescued from awful, awful things and hard and hurtful and painful seasons where people thought we'll never recover from this. And year after year, healing begins to happen and Jesus redeems and restores and makes whole what's broken. So here's the question. We can follow, we can flee, or we can surrender in all of these different areas. Uh, We can follow and do whatever we want in the moment. We can flee and make everything about the contract Or we can surrender and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my marriage right now?